this morning, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're going to look at radical kingdom obedience. Radical kingdom obedience. So remember, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is restoring God's original intent behind the law of the Ten Commandments and doing so, exposing our desperate need for the new heart that only He can give. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we certainly see God's intention for our lives. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. God is not saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You're do that. Jesus is saying, look, I, I can offer you abundant life. My yoke isn't burdensome. I'm here to give you rest. I want you to live the life that you've been created to live. I want you to have fullness of joy. And so through obeying the teachings of Jesus, that's what we have. Jesus isn't a cosmic killjoy. He's the creator of all that is good. So he knows how it should be experienced for his glory and for our best good. So particularly, this is kind of the overall sermon, but particularly as we look at today's passage, we see that Jesus' teachings protect the sacredness of marriage and us from destructive choices so that we can fully enjoy God's design for the gift of marriage as salt and light, as we live as salt and light, right? So we're trying to tie in this theme of being who we are as salt and light. So we're going to talk about tough things this morning in an area where, uh, towards the end, where many of us, we just failed. We haven't been pure. Um, and I, I don't want you to be overwhelmed with guilt or shame, but I want you to understand the great forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. That we may feel like we're a thousand miles from Jesus, but we're only one step back to him in repentance. And he stands there with his arms wide open. I love you. Come to me. And so just remember the gospel that teaches us um, that God's grace far exceeds any sin that we could commit. And that there's full and free forgiveness at the cross. You simply need to cry out uh, to God. So as we consider today's topic, and today we're talking about Jesus' command where he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if any person looks at another person with lust in their heart, then they've committed adultery, right? Pretty strong words. And most of us, uh, as adults, we have had this kind of discussion if you're married or with maybe somebody close to you. Did you hear about the so-and-so family? They're no longer together. Yeah, he left. And then the next question is, is oh, was there unfaithfulness? Was there infidelity? As we look at our current culture, and it's hard to get really hard, fast statistics because, I mean, people aren't always honest with these things. And, uh, but I think it's helpful to understand um, the desperate nature of the culture that we live in. The percentage of marriages where one or both spouses admit to infidelity, either physical or emotional, is 41%. I've seen statistics as high as 60%. I don't know where they get that from. That's crazy. 22% of men admit to straying at least once while being married. The average length of an extramarital affair is two years. 31%, that's the percentage of marriages that stay together after a cheating spouse has been discovered or the affair is admitted. Men, 
74% are more likely than women. 68%, so there's not a, a huge difference there. Men are more likely than women to say that they would have an affair if they knew that they wouldn't be caught. It's sad that that's how we function sometimes, right? If you knew you weren't going to get caught, what, you know, well, okay, I'll do it. So as we look at this passage, Jesus is not only protected in the sacredness of marriage, he's not only saying, hey, I've created intimacy for your joy, for my glory, and I want you to experience that in its fullness, and it, and it happens within the, con- the context of the marriage. He's also saying that when we fail, that radical repentance is necessary. The seriousness of sin demands a new heart and radical repentance with a period. It's not open-ended. So let's, let's pray um, and look at the text and ask God to teach us. Father, we thank you for your words, the words of life, and help us to keep in mind as we look at your word today uh, that the gospel is good news, that we have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We have full forgiveness as far as the east is from the west. You do not treat us as our sins deserve because of Jesus. We thank you for the beautiful good news of the gospel. But Father, I pray that you would help us to see maybe areas where we're being careless in our lives and and leaving an opening uh, where sin can creep in, uh, sin that could even lead to the destruction of a covenant relationship that we call marriage. Father, please open our eyes. Holy Spirit, teach us as you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I'd like to flip this and make it positive, okay? Because I really want us to understand that Jesus is not, you know, a cosmic killer. Jesus is um, trying to protect you. He's trying to lovingly lead you into the path of righteousness that will give you the greatest joy. So I kind of just kind of rephrased it, okay? But I tell you, the beautiful gift of intimacy is protected by the marriage relationship. Lusting after others or immorality will destroy the blessing that I, t- I intend, Jesus speaking, that I intend through marriage. Jesus created intimacy, which Jesus guards to maximize its blessing in our lives. This is so important to understand. But he continues, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right eye hand, right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than to go into hell. And so the teaching today is this, that Jesus... Teachings protect the sacredness of marriage and us from destructive choices so that we can fully enjoy God's design for the gift of marriage. So to be salt and light, okay, we must honor marriage through purity. As we honor marriage and hold it in high esteem, Hebrews 13, 4, I believe, um, Uh, We are salt and light in the world. And so as we look at this text, um, what I want to do is is do this rationalization versus reality. So anytime we we are going to sin, right, we have this thought process that's going through our head, okay? I want this thing, okay? 
Um, God says no. Well, this is why I think I should have it, right? I, you know, this has happened in my life. I've been through these circumstances. God's created with me, we with needs, you know. Uh, we love each other, yada, yada. I, I, I think, it's okay, but on the other side, God's word says, right? So there's this conversation going back and forth, right? And, and our conscience, Paul talked about this in Romans, alternately excusing and accusing us. So as we look at this text, and about three-quarters of the way through, I'm actually going to pull away just a little bit from the text at hand to try to bring in the broader topic of immorality so that we can just really kind of catch everything if we can. Um, But we're going to go rationalization versus reality. When we rationalize sin, when we rationalize sin, we all do this. Nobody's exempt. When we rationalize sin, the reality is that we pursue a path of destruction instead of life of blessing. Can I say it again, that Jesus wants you to have abundant life? Jesus wants you to be blessed. Jesus wants you to experience all that he has for you. But like any good, loving father, God sets boundaries to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from the destructive nature of sin. All right, so when we look at the rationalization, I'm going to have it in this, I don't call it a, a bubble, okay? Kind of like the interlocutor, the person that's talking, okay? And in the bubble is going to be the rationalization. And so the first rationalization is this. The entire Bible really is a matter of, of one's own interpretation, right? I've sat down with people doing uh, marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and I've gone through all the reasons why this and this should happen. And then at the very end... The person said, well, that's, really, that's a matter of your interpretation of what the Bible says, right? So, again, as we look at the text, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, right? And in the yellow, you have heard that it was said, really was this oral tradition given by the scribes and the Pharisees that they handed down for centuries. And what they had done is they had deviated away from uh, the law itself, and the intention of God behind the law. But Jesus says, but I tell you, I'm, I'm trying to recalibrate you, I'm trying to reorient you, I'm trying to recenter you around what God's law really meant, what my word really is. And so the rationalization, well, the Bible really is just a matter of one's own interpretation, really is not true, because God's word is clear concerning marriage and the parameters of intimacy. God's word doesn't, doesn't stumble at this point. And if you're going to begin picking and choosing what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible, what's, we'll see this in a second, what's closed into a context and what applies to today, where do you end? And in the very end, what you've done is you're going to bring into question your very salvation, the existence of God your whole existence. So God's word doesn't stumble at the point of of the marriage relationship or intimacy between two people. It's clear. The interpretation is not difficult to arrive at. So the next, oh, before we move on though, what I wanted to do was to just kind of give you a definition of marriage. So this this is my definition of marriage. And as we understand, I think, better marriage, and we'll talk about this more next week, because Jesus moves from this statement about adultery to 
the issue of divorce next week. So next week, you guys are going to double whammy because in the first service, Sam's preaching through Malachi, and he's going to be talking about divorce. In the second message, I'll be talking about the same thing. But as we consider marriage and God's intention for marriage, let's look at this definition that I've come up with. If I can find it on my uh, overhead here. Here we go. Marriage is, I love typos, marriage is a covenantal union established by God between one man and one woman, Genesis 2. The Bible's clear about that. He does this to illustrate the great love that Christ has for his people. When I do pyramidal counseling, I explain that, you know, uh, God didn't create marriage and go, hey, you know what? A good illustration of marriage is Christ and the church. No, God created marriage and says, this is going to demonstrate the beautiful, intimate love that my son is going to have for his people. And it is the only relationship blessed by God for the enjoyment of one flesh intimacy, which serves to seal the covenant. And that's it. We'll talk about that more next week, right? This one flesh relationship, this intimacy that is, is within the constraints of marriage is blessed by God, and it really is the seal of the covenant. And we go too far into that, and we'll talk about it more next week. So God is clear about what marriage is. He's clear about where the one flesh relationship should occur. And when I say intimacy, that's what I mean. So as we continue with our rationalization, why not wait, 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 the Bible was written a long time ago. Times have changed. Well, we rationalize sin by questioning the relevance of God's word for today. Right, and we, and we add to that, you know, did Jesus really say that? Is that what Jesus said, or is that what somebody else said in the Bible? Because if Jesus didn't say it, then it must, it, it, Jesus' words take priority over what Paul says, because Jesus is Jesus and Paul was Paul. That's a horrible way to look at the Bible. All Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. The very same author... Of, of Genesis, the very same author of Matthew, the very same author of, of Romans and 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit. And because God is eternal, His Word is eternal. The opinions of man, the philosophy of man, they're going to come and go. They're going to fade like the flowers in the field, but the Word of God is eternal. It stands forever. So again, if you begin to question the relevance of God's word for you today, you begin to question its relevance for you today. So the reality is this, is sin has always has been, always has been and always will be defined by God. He's defined it in his word. His word is eternal. You shall not commit adultery. Well, here's the line that most of you may have heard. I'm not committing adultery if I window shop, am I? Right, if I'm just kind of looking at other women, am I, am I committing adultery? I've, I've had people really take this stance before. Like, seriously. And if you do this, you're on a razor's edge, Okay. One commentator I, I read wrote that. You're on a razor's edge if this is the stance you're going to take. Admittedly, I think, I, I think we are 
responsible to acknowledge beauty in the world. But here's the thing. External beauty is, I would say, for the most part, uh, with respect to people, a social construct. Like, societies have changed over the ages. Like, what, what is a, a beautiful man or beautiful woman? They're responsible because God is the creator of all things to acknowledge his beauty and the beauty in his creation. So, yeah, we, we need to do that. But you're walking a fine line if you're taking a second look at somebody, oh, I'm just acknowledging their beauty. You're on a razor's edge. Right? The rationalization is there's no harm in looking. You just can't sample the goods. So that sounds kind of crass, but that's what I've heard. So Jesus addresses this, doesn't he? He moves on in the text. He says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. So it's interesting in, in this commandment, you know, do not commit adultery. Um, you're breaking another commandment, don't steal, stealing a wife. You're breaking another commandment, don't covet. Okay, because really the word for covet used uh, you know, by, by Moses is translated in the in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, is the same word for lust that we have here. So the word covet and lust are the same thing. So if you break those commandments, then guess what? You break the commandment to love God, and you're certainly not loving your neighbor. And so back to the point, though, the reality is this. You don't lust after or covet what you don't first see. You don't lust after or covet what you don't first see. So this is a tough one. This is a fine line. Samuel Storm says this, and he's the one that I got the razor's edge, I think, from. It says, to recognize, acknowledge, and compliment beauty is no sin. It may even be a duty. But to look upon another human being with the express purpose of fantasizing illicit activity or mentally and emotionally gratifying one's intimate desires is out of biblical bounds. The distinction between looking and lusting is not a great chasm, but a razor's edge. Right? I've, I've tried to, when the, the girls were younger, and, you know, um, boys, boys are harder when they're younger, right? Just lots of activity, but I don't going on. But when the girls will get older, it's, it's just emotionally, all this stuff's going on, and you got the boys coming in from the outside, like, ah, you know. And I've tried to explain at that age, this is what a boy's thinking. I love me and I lust after you. That's what's going on. And so, as we consider the issue of lusting and the fact that looking is the beginning of lusting, and I'm intentionally not saying men right now, okay? Because I, I think Jesus broadens it out a little bit, okay? Men are physically drawn more visually, okay? That's just the way we are. But I think I need to include everybody in this conversation. And everybody needs to be included in this same covenant, right? Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at anybody else. Right, so the eyes are, we're going to see in a second, the window to the soul, right? The sin begins in the eyes. Like Genesis chapter 3, 
When the woman saw that the fruit was, of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, right? So how did that first sin that set the world into this death spiral begin? By looking. She saw it. It looked good. And so Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, admittedly, the context here is wealth and treasures, but the concept of the eye, the principle is the same. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do not window shop. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the undisciplined of the eyes. We get this, don't we, guys? We get this. Well, the next rationalization is that, look, I'm in the clear, right? I'm in the clear because, you know what? Jesus doesn't talk about intimacy before marriage, outside of marriage, or any other type of intimacy. He's just talking about adultery, right? So I'm not married, they're not married, so hey, it's okay. Because that's all the Bible's talking about right here. Well, the rationalization is this. Jesus is only talking about adultery, right? I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Really, is that what you're going to do? Because Jesus broadens it out later. In Matthew chapter 5, he talks about this issue of immorality. We'll see this next week, right? So this immorality is any type of intimacy outside the boundaries of of the marital relationship. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for, it doesn't say adultery there, except for immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. While Jesus may be addressing adultery here, elsewhere he is clearly declares any intimacy outside the marriage covenant is forbidden. When I say marriage covenant, I've already defined it. Marriage is one man, one woman. That's how Scripture defines marriage. Contra our culture. And later on in Matthew 15, Jesus says this, for out of the heart, right? Jesus is going to the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. I'm trying to avoid that word. Immorality. And again, immorality here is any intimacy outside marriage. Any intimacy is forbidden because Jesus is a cosmic killjoy. Because we've been given this beautiful, wonderful gift that brings so much satisfaction. And he just doesn't want us to have it. He wants to be greedy about it. No, he knows where and when. Because he loves you, he says no. As parents, you understand that. I love you. No, no, no. You just don't know what you're doing. Oh, yes, I do. We see that at an early age, don't we? Well, the next statement of the interlocutor is, but we love each other. We love each other. And love is the fulfillment of the law, right? Right? If we love each other, that's all that matters. There's this concept called the new morality. It's... It's really bad. 
came out, I think, back in the 60s, maybe 70s. Really involves situational ethics, right? You don't know what to do. There's no right or wrong, you know, enforced on a situation. You look at the situation, and the situation determines what you do. But love needs to rule the day. This guy Joseph Fletcher wrote this situation. I haven't read the whole book. I read clips of it. Individuals have the freedom, even the responsibility, to determine what love would do. In the words of a a great philosopher, what's love got to do with it? (laughs) Individuals have the freedom, even the responsibility, to determine what love would do, not based on a predetermined code of ethics, rather by the details of the situation itself, right? So because of the way our culture functions now, void of any objective external truth, right? Truth is, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. There is no truth outside of us that has any bearing on our activities, i.e. God and his word. Somehow, somewhere, they get this concept of love. Where does this concept of love come from? Is it just sucked out of nowhere? Spontaneously generated? No, love, we know what love is because of God. That's the only way we know what love is. He existed in eternity past in perfect love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He demonstrates perfect love through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. God determines what love is. So we just care about love. We just care about love. Right? The Bible says that. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look, as long as I'm loving my neighbor... That's all I'm doing. I'm loving my neighbor. Don't get caught up on that rule following, that nitpicking. That's kind of legalistic. What God cares about most is love. Galatians 5.14. But what about Galatians 5.13? See, it's always the thing that comes before or after that we've got to look at. Paul's like, it's for freedom that you've been set free, right? You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge in the lust of the flesh. Rather what? Serve one another in love. Friends, love is guided by truth, not lust. Yes, we are called to be a people of love. We're to love God with every fiber of our being. We're to love our neighbors, ourselves. But love is guided by truth. And the truth is this, is that Jesus has predetermined the barriers for intimacy. And that barrier is marriage. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. Well, this is the point where we are kind of moving away from the text in Matthew just to kind of cover the whole concept, right? Well, and I've dealt with this before. I should have never married my spouse. They will never change. Life isn't fair. We have a horrible relationship. You're talking about intimacy? We've been sleeping in different rooms for the past 15 years. But I can't get divorced. The Bible says, don't get divorced. We're in the same house. We're living separate lives. God's given me these needs and desires. Right? God's sovereign. He created me with needs. It's not my fault that I'm in this situation. God will understand, right? God understands. He's he's okay with that. 
He does understand. But God has ordained the marriage covenant. A covenant that is only to be broken by death. Or we'll see next week the case of immorality. So if you're in this situation or you know brother or sister in Christ that's in this situation, remind them of the sufficiency of God's grace. Paul's praying about this thorn, this thorn in the flesh, right? And there's probably more than one couple in the United States that views their spouse as a thorn in the flesh. Sadly so. And let me just say, marriage is beautiful. I love it. Grades, it's, I love marriage. Marriage is awesome, okay? I'm not dissing marriage. But there are situations where people are together and they view each other as a thorn and they're, they're not going to get divorced. But they still have desires. And so they need to live life in purity. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Sometimes in difficult relationships, it's the power of God that needs to rest on you to allow you to live in purity in the midst of that relationship. But also remember that there's no temptation that's overtaking you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it, right? The circumstances that we find ourselves in in life sometimes are amazingly difficult. Yes, God is sovereign, but do you think it's escaped, God, that you are in a marriage where you have no intimacy? Or perhaps, perhaps you aren't married. Perhaps you were married, you were faithful, and now you don't have a husband or have a wife. God understands your circumstances. His grace is sufficient and no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. Well, the other, another rationalization I've heard, if nobody knows and nobody gets hurt, then what's the problem? Nobody knows, nobody gets hurt. What's the problem? And this is really the spirit of the age. If what I do doesn't hurt somebody around me, then everything's okay. I can do this if nobody's going to get hurt. We rationalize sin by minimizing the consequences. Well, the reality is this, is that God is not mocked, right? God is the lawgiver. God knows how we function best. God's Laws are ordained to give us the greatest joy and the most abundant life. And we're accountable to God for our actions, and God is not mocked. God is not deceived. You think somehow God is not where you are or doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know what's going through your mind? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Secondly, you you damage both parties spiritually, not to mention the body of Christ, when you engage in adultery or sexual immorality. You're not just damaging yourself, you're damaging the other person, you're damaging the body of Christ, if you're a believer. That's why Paul says, flee from immorality, all their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
You do damage yourself. You do damage the other person. It cannot be escaped. And Jesus warns us again, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must not come, but woe to that person through whom they come. If you're causing somebody else to stumble because of your lust, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting that person, and Jesus says, woe. It's not a good word, woe. Woe is like you're headed down the path to complete destruction. You're making choices right now in the flesh for very temporary satisfaction that are leading you into the fire of hell. That's what woe means. And Jesus reaffirms that. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. You are in danger of hell. We'll talk about that again in a second. So we move from this concept of of adultery and lusting, this rationalization versus reality, to the required radical repentance. Right? And Jesus' words really hit us hard right here. In assault and light, radical repentance is necessary, killing sin by any means necessary. By any means necessary. In July, July 22nd of 1993, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the paper there, reported the story of Donald Wyman, who two days earlier suffered a terrible accident. While clearing land, a tree rolled onto his leg, crushing the bone and pinning him to the ground. He cried loudly and and for a long time, but no one was near to hear or to come for help. Donald concluded that the only way he would survive was to amputate his leg. He made a tourniquet from a shoestring, and he tightened it with a wrench. He then took a pocket knife and cut off the injured leg just below the knee. He then crawled to a bulldozer, drove another quarter mile uh, to his truck, then somehow he maneuvered it a mile and a half down the road to a farmhouse from which he was then rushed to the hospital. He lost his leg, but he saved his life. And that's the point that Jesus is moving him to here. As crazy as that seems, what he went through to save his life physically, Jesus says, we need to go through that spiritually if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. These verses have perplexed the faithful throughout the centuries. What is it I have to do? What do I have to cut off? Tell me what I need to do. Give me a spoon. I'll pop it out. What do I need to do? As horrible as that sounds, it's a beautiful thing that somebody would engage in such a beautiful fight for purity. One person, no exception, was Origen of Alexandria. He lived around uh, around 200 years after Christ. One of the early church fathers, very prolific writer, over 6,000 writings. But when he was a young man, he was really struggling with purity. He just had a wandering eye. And he read this passage. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So he read this. He's very perplexed. 
And he was so moved by the words of Jesus that he, he castrated himself. He did that. He thought he could do it and not be discovered, but he was. And this was such a big deal that the Council of Nicaea actually condemns that action on the part of a man to escape lust. So is this really the answer? Is this what we have to do? Is this what needs to happen? Well, consider the case of John. Nameless, faceless John. John had a relationship with Mary. Mary was his administrative assistant. John was always stirred by Mary's beauty, but recently his gaze had turned to lust. Taking Jesus' words literally, John proceeds to cut out his right eye. Thinking that the problem is solved, he returns to work after a period of rehabilitation, only to find out that now his left eye has still lusted as well. So he cuts his left eye out too. He now comes to work with a seeing eye dog. He's not as efficient at his job, but he's convinced that he's been obedient to Christ and beyond lusting after Mary. But then he hears Mary's voice. An illicit desire rages yet again in his heart, so he lops off both of his ears. He again returns to work. Not a pretty sight, to say the least. Confident that it won't happen again, he walks by her desk and he smells her perfume. Lust rages once more, so he cuts off his nose. Not even that solves his problem. For as he gropes through the office in his self-inflicted blindness, his hands accidentally brushed up against Mary's body, and his flesh is stirred yet again. So he somehow cuts off his hands. It is only then that John realizes he still has a mind, and Mary's memory lingers vividly. Where's where's the problem? The problem's in his heart. John needs a new heart. John needs a new heart. So as Jesus teaches radical repentance, it will go to extreme measures to obey his teachings. That radical repentance has to begin with a new heart. The Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus are complete futility unless you have been born again through Jesus Christ. And he wants to give that to you. He wants you to have a new heart. He wants you to have a heart that lusts after him above all things. That yes, as followers of Christ, we have to engage in radical obedience, radical repentance to his teachings. And so the first thing we have to do is guard our thoughts, right? At the very end, John still had that thought about Mary. And in Romans, helpfully, Paul says, he says, don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You've got to guard your thoughts. You have to have this replacement therapy. Well, how do you do that? Clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. If you're fighting the fight against your flesh, if you're battling lust, and you're, not, if, and you're engaged in radical repentance, if you're not filling your mind with the Word of God, it's going to be futility. Because your thoughts are going to continue to come back to that sin. That sin. You've got to fill your mind with the Word of God. So guard your thoughts. Proverbs 4 is very helpful. You know why? Because Solomon gives this counsel to his sons right before he goes into this discussion about 
avoiding adultery. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow everything. I'm quoting another version. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. We looked at this last week. Guarding your heart means that you're going to do certain things in your life to protect what your eyes see, what goes into your heart. Because your heart is the issue. And so as Proverbs 4.24 continues, we look at Proverbs 4.24, keep your mouth free of perversity, keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Guard your lips. Guard your thoughts, guard your heart, guard your lips. Well, how does this apply to the issue of immorality or adultery? Well, I think probably you're going to talk to the person. At the very least, you're going to text. Who am I talking to? How often do I talk to that person? Is it appropriate for me to talk to that person? I mean, just a little window into my life. I work in a nursing home with a lot of women. I've always worked with a lot of women. And it's been very hard. Because I'm, I'm pretty, like, I, I'm, you know, I talk a lot, and I, I try to help people. I want to, you know, I want to do what, you know, help people out and do what is right. And, and it can come across the wrong way. And so I've had some moments where I've cried out and repented, God, I've got to guard who I talk to. Because they're thinking that I have an affection towards them. And that affection leads to morality. So guard your lips. He also says guard your eyes. Proverbs uh, 4.25. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. We've covered that. But Solomon continues. He says guard your steps. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or left. Keep your foot from evil. Where are your feet carrying you? Paul says, look, flee immorality. Run from it. If you're getting close, don't cuddle up to it. Run as fast as you can away from it. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. In his counsel to Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Our tendency is to cuddle up close to those things that we struggle with. Instead of running away from it, we kind of get close. We're like, you know, testing it out. D.A. Carson says this. What then does Jesus mean? Just this. We are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little bit of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death. Kill it. Paul says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And that's where Jesus is going here. Better to take your eye out Cut your arm off, cut your feet off, whatever. Better do that and see your whole body going into hell. But the beauty of life in the Spirit, the new covenant that Christ gives us through His blood, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, what? You will live! 
You'll have life, abundant life. This is not just, okay, you'll take another breath. As Jesus says, I've come not just to give you life, but to give you abundant life. And I know how you need to live life to have that abundant life. So listen to me. Listen to me. And you will live. So be what you are. Salt and light require radical repentance when necessary, killing sin by any means necessary. And so we finish with the reminder from Jesus Christ, right? It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell, right? That word hell is Gehenna. It is the valley, and it's the Kidron Valley. It's just outside of Jerusalem. It's where they burn the trash. I talked about this last week. Not a nice place. This was the best visual image that Jesus could give people of eternity separated from God and a conscious torment. Those are the words of Jesus. Eternal, conscious, torment, separated from God. For ten minutes of pleasure? Two-year flirtatious relationship? Excitement on the internet? Really? Matthew 18, Jesus basically says the same thing. John Piper is helpful here in future faith. Very helpful quote. Jesus says, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. He's not being legalistic here. He's saying, if your disposition is that you are willing to go after your lust or give in to your lust without a fight, then you're evidencing that God's Spirit is not living within you. You haven't experienced the new birth. You don't have a new heart. Therefore, you won't be in heaven. Piper goes on, it's not that saints always succeed. In the fight for purity, we, we, we know the failure, right? We know the failure. God's mercies are new every morning, men. God's not... He's not saying you're going to have to be perfect or else. He's saying, no, you need, you need to have a disposition of I'm, I'm going to fight this, right? John Piper says, the issue is that we resolve to fight, not that we succeed flawlessly. Right? Jesus knows that. A saving faith is a lust-fighting faith. I do not mean by this that our faith produces perfect flawlessness in this life. I mean that it produces a persevering fight. You know, I, I don't know what God has for you in the fight for purity. I do know this, a great man, great theologian, my hero Paul says, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do anyway. What a wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Right? If Paul struggled in his battle, whatever it was, okay? If he struggled throughout his life, then we're going to have a struggle. It could be God's sovereign will and plan for that struggle to be there. It doesn't mean you just give in to, oh, this is what God has for me. So if, God ha if you have this for me, that's, well, I'm just going to have to live with it, and you know, it's whatever, it's going to happen. No. You wake up every single day 
God, I love you, Jesus. Thank you for giving me a new heart. Thank you for making me salt and light. I'm going to live today. I'm going to fight today. I'm going to do everything I need. I'm going to, I'm going to guard my thoughts, guard my heart. I'm going to guard my feet. I'm going to, I'm going to guard whatever I have to do to, to take care of this issue. I want to live for you. That's the fight. And remember, if you have been failing and you feel far one step, you just got to turn around and repent and cry out to Jesus and his arms are open wide for he loves you. He wants you to turn back to him. Salt and light require radical repentance. When necessary, killing sin by any means necessary. Jesus' teachings protect the sacredness of marriage and us from destructive choices. So that, positively, listen, so that we can fully enjoy God's design. Fully enjoy. For the gift of marriage, the salt and light. Amen? All right. Thank you for bearing with me. We did start late. I have to remind you, we started late, so let's pray, and then we will sing a song together. And I think the song we're going to sing together is Be Thou My Vision, so that's pretty appropriate for us today. We want Christ to be our vision as we uh, live life for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the teachings of Jesus that call us to radical repentance that, want, that, that gives us abundant life in him. I pray that you would work in and among us this morning to that end. Lord, you know the struggles of each person here. You know each person uh, and what they're dealing with, and I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would deal with us as you see fit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.